0: The conversion story of Charles Spurgeon is both ordinary and spectacular. He recounted the story many, many times, and I want to share with you this morning one of my favorite tellings. Spurgeon said this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. I was out, and when I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen people, or maybe 15. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. Therefore, a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, something of the sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was this, Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but it mattered not. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just, look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Look. Then it says, look unto me. Aye, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life, and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look and live. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and i could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of christ god saves sinners he does so by his grace he gives the gift of faith that saves salvation life meaning Joy come not from within, but from without. Not from us, but from God. Nevertheless, most people, and many Christians, live with the idea that freedom and life, happiness, could never come from without. They believe that true happiness is found from looking within themselves. I think this sentiment was captured well by CNN's Chris Cuomo last summer. He said this, if you believe in one another and if you do the right thing for yourself and your community, things will get better in this country. Here's the part I want you to hear. You don't need help from above. It is within us. See, the belief that he was parroting is that all we need to overcome at the time, the pandemic, and, and all we need to overcome all the societal ills that exist is to believe in ourselves. Look within And therein, we will find the answer to humanity's problems. One need not be in American culture very long to recognize that this philosophy defines much of our nation. Indeed, expressive individualism is the worldview du jour. And it's no mistake that people would adopt this idea that the most authentic way to live is to indulge every desire that is within yourself. And so if you want to have life, if you want to be happy, if you want to be free, well, you look within, you figure out what desires are inside of you, and then you obey those desires. You follow them. And anybody that gets in your way or tells you that you can't follow your desires, well, they're oppressive restrictive I mean it makes sense why people like this right basically says do whatever you want and if somebody tells you that what you want is wrong well actually they're wrong the notion is that we are to find ourselves by looking within ourselves we are to find freedom and happiness and satisfaction from looking within within The Bible has a completely different worldview. We are told not to look within ourselves, but to look to Jesus. And it is in looking to Jesus that we will receive happiness. We will discover our true meaning in life, to worship the living God. It's from looking to Jesus that we'll receive the grace of God and be made alive to God. Friends, my prayer this morning is that we would all learn together or perhaps remember what Charles Spurgeon learned so many years ago. That it is in looking to Christ that we will live. We want to look to Jesus, receive his grace, and come to life. That's what Paul was teaching here in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. He's teaching us that our salvation, our life, our freedom comes not from ourselves, but from God. It's God's work. And God deserves all the glory for our salvation. that's our main idea this morning. God gets all the glory in our salvation. And in light of that, I want to exhort you to boast in God and to bear the fruit that God has cultivated. Outlines there before you, salvation is God's work, not ours, and salvation results in our good works. Let's pray and we'll begin this morning. Father, we come before you this morning we ask that you would jettison any pride that exists within us. That you would humble us beneath your great mercy and your great love. Pray that we would see you as you are, holy. We ask that you would help us to recognize that we are more sinful than we ever dared dream. And in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Meet us in this place. Speak to us through your word. Move us to worship you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our souls. Move us to worship you together in spirit and in truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's review really quickly to get the context of our passage before we settle down in verses 8 through 10. Remember, in verses 1 through 3, Paul is making the point that apart from Christ, we are dead. That means we have a spiritual inability to relate to God. The default condition of all of humanity, of everyone you've ever met, is not child of God, but a child of wrath. Apart from the saving work of Christ Jesus our Lord, we are children of wrath, doomed for eternal destruction. We are disciples of Satan. Satan. We are slaves to our passions and our desires. We live according to the course of the world. We follow our hearts. We're dead. We are not a little dead. We're dead dead. We're not as a drowning man in the ocean who needs a life preserver. We are as a dead person at the bottom of the ocean having our skin picked clean by crabs and other crustaceans. We are separated from God and without hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of God's great mercy, because of God's great love, because of God's great kindness, he sets his love on his people and brings them to life. God brings dead people to life. And he does so through faith In Jesus Christ's substitutionary death, he dies in the place of his people for their sins, and Jesus' substitutionary life, he lives a perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived, and earns the blessing of God. And when our faith is in Christ, we receive this great grace of God. We come alive. And Paul says we are raised up with him, seated with him in heavenly places. Current realities. And he says that purpose in verse 7, so that God might in the coming ages show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Age after age, we are to be the recipients of God's kindness in increasing measure forever and ever. There is so much more to say on that in And I refer you to last week's sermon for that. But now we come to our verses in verses 8 through 10. Yet first, I want us to look back at verse 5 and recognize that that Paul kind of gives us a prelude to what he's going to say in verses 8 through 10. He says this in the middle of the sentence. He says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, and do you notice this little insertion, this little outburst? By grace you have been saved. Right? Recognize the sent- that doesn't need to be there in the sentence at all. In fact, the sentence runs much more smoothly if you just read it this way. Made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul insert, by grace you have been saved at precisely this moment? I think the answer is this, he wants us to know right from the get-go that we come to life not because of what we do, but because of God's grace. Paul says, but because of what God has done, he's made you alive in Christ, and don't you for a second think that you had anything to do with that. Don't for a second think you can take credit for that. The glory is God's. The work is God's. And now in verses 8 through 10, he elaborates for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to slow down and walk through this passage. We're going to do so by defining a few words. And the reason for this is I think it's so easy to read through familiar passages like this and miss their power because we're so used to hearing them. Right. Next to, to John 3:16, I, I think Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 might be the most memorized passage among Christians. We become so familiar with it that it becomes rote and we miss the extraordinary thing that God has done. Saved us by grace through faith. So the first, first question we've got to ask, what does Paul mean when he says we are saved, right? I think what what comes to to my mind immediately when we talk about someone being saved is Superman. Y'all have seen Superman, right? And and there's inevitably a scene in any Superman movie where where Lois Lane is falling from a tall building or something. She's in danger, and and he swoops in and catches her. I always thought she would probably split in half because of the force of the fall and the strength of his arms. It'd be like falling in her, But, but he saves her, or, or Spider-Man, right? He always saves Mary Jane most of the time. That's not the picture Paul is painting for us when he talks about us being saved. His picture is not, not of like a, a last-second rescue, right? The picture he's painting is one of resurrection. I mean, it's, it's closer to like Frankenstein, even though that's not, not close. I was trying to think of a famous zombie, that was already you know, somebody already dead. The picture is of resurrection. So when we are saved, the idea is that we are made alive to God. We're free from death. And not only that, If we consider that when we come to life, the the reverse of verses 1 through 3 happens, right? Not only are we free from death, we're free from slavery to sin. We're no longer disciples of Satan. We're no longer in bondage to following our every whim and whimsy. I Think before God opens our blinded eyes. We believe and live as if there is no truth more reliable than our own perspective and experience. And so we live our lives according to my truth like looking at the world through a carnival mirror and thinking that, that you see clearly. And, and God opens our blinded eyes so that we can see the objective truth of the matter, that we were enslaved to the passions of our flesh. And so when, we're, when we are saved, we're, we're made alive to God And we're set free from death. And we're set free from our passions. We're set free from our slavery to sin. And we're given a new destiny. Before we were children of wrath, our lives have earned the wrath of God. God's wrath is His right response to evil. We've done evil. We are due wrath. Our destiny was hell. When we are saved, God makes us alive. He frees us from the passions of our flesh, and He changes our destiny. Our destiny is no longer wrath for all eternity, but blessing, the blessing that's due Christ. He makes us alive, and part of being saved is that eternity of enjoying the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To be saved, fundamentally, is to be made alive, to be brought from death to life. The Bible uses the word saved in a variety of ways, and so I think it is helpful for us to think of salvation or being saved in terms of past, present, and future. Right? You have been saved. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty due to your sins you are being saved. Presently, you are saved from the power of sin. And so now we we struggle against sin. We're not perfect. We still slip into sin, but we're struggling against it. It no longer is our master because we're not under the law. We're under grace. We have the Holy Spirit. We can choose to obey God now. We're, We're free from the power of sin. And so, so, saved, being saved, and will be saved. In the future, we're going to be saved from sin's very presence. When Jesus returns to make all things new, and to end evil entirely. So this is what Paul has in mind when he talks about being saved. Most simply, we, we just say, it needs to be made alive. And he says that we're made alive, we're saved by grace. You go, well, what is grace? I think typically the the definition is unmerited favor, right? You can't earn God's favor. When we speak of favor, we're talking about all the benefits that are due to Jesus coming to us. It means that we are beloved, beloved and accepted before God. That's what it means to have his favor. I like to go a step further because of my own idiosyncrasies. It's not, not just that God gives us unmerited favor. It's that he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. So I, I try to say something like, grace is God's contraconditional favor. We weren't just neutral to God, and he gave us his grace. We were his enemies, and he gave us his grace. Despite what we deserved, God had mercy on us and gives to us all that is rightfully Jesus's. It's quite quite amazing. And the means by which this grace comes to us is through faith. But what is faith? What is faith? The Bible tells us in Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There are other definitions, pretty good ones, right? I like, uh, one of my favorites is faith is believing what you know to be true because you have good reason to believe it's true. Or another pastor defines it this way. He says faith is not merely believing in God, It's believing God. Taking God at His word. Living in obedience to His revelation. Whatever the cost. Because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what He says. I like that one. We could multiply definitions here. But I think some of these definitions... Obscure for us what exactly it is that faith does. Faith is the mechanism by which we receive God's grace. Faith is how we receive God's grace and mercy and love. Think of it this way. I recently went to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I think maybe about a month ago now. And, and, and when I went, uh, the physician sat down, and he, he brought a, a syringe out, and he brought the, the medication out, and he injected it into my arm. Now, h- had I gone there and, and showed up, and he just took the syringe with nothing in it, and just, you know, it would have been worthless, superfluous, pointless, because I didn't, didn't have any medicine But because there was medicine on the other end, the vaccine is effective. See, friends, faith is like the syringe. It's the conduit through which God's grace flows to us. With me? Faith by itself does not save anyone. I think this gets twisted sometimes. We're like, we just you just have to have faith. Don't matter what it's in. If you just have faith, things will work out in the end. Because we've said before, it's not the, the faith in of itself that saves, it's what your faith is in, right? And so if I have faith, really serious faith, I believe with all of my heart that I can breathe underwater, and then I attempt the feat, I'm going to drown. Because the object of my faith, me, don't have the ability to deliver on that. But if I have very little mustard seed-sized faith in the ability of an airplane to take me from Lynchburg to Florida, I can get there. Because the plane, the object of my faith, is able to deliver on what my faith is in. Right? It's not the amount of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. Faith is how we receive the grace of God. You can think of it this way. Spurgeon's illustration. Faith is sort of like your eyes, ears, and mouth. Your eye does not create the light. It receives it. Your ear does not create sound. It receives it. Your mouth does not create food or bring nourishment to your body. It's how your body receives the nourishment. Friends, likewise, faith is how we receive God's grace. The conduit through which God's grace flows to us. And faith, along with the whole of salvation, even faith itself is the gift of God. Did you see this? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing It is the gift of God. So sometimes there's a question in verse 8. So what does this refer to? Does this refer to God's grace? Yes. Is grace a gift? Yes. Does it refer to salvation, to being saved? Yes. Does it refer to faith as being a gift of God? Yes. This is not your own doing, refers not just to faith, but to the entire phrase which precedes it. It refers to the entire soteriological kit in caboodle. God saves his people. He gives the faith by which we receive his grace. He gives the grace by which we are saved. Salvation is God's work, not ours. Therefore, we cannot take any glory in it. But we can't boast in and of ourselves, like, my salvation, well, really, I'm a good person. No, we don't get any of the credit. All the credit, all the glory, all the praise goes to God. Salvation is, as the first chapter tells us, to the praise of his glorious grace. Man doesn't have a leg to boast on. If our faith was something that we just conjured up in ourselves, well, then we could say, well, I believed God because of what I did. Well, then we would have a leg to stand on, wouldn't we? But God won't have that. He doesn't share His glory with anyone else. It's all His. But when we try to take credit for our own salvation, it's very foolish, Similar to, to sometimes Chelsea will, will make bread at my house, and I'll stand in the kitchen while she's doing it, and then afterwards, if somebody comes over and, and says, "Oh, this this bread is it's great. There's nothing like fresh br- baked bread," I'll say, "I know. You're very welcome." I worked hard on it. <sighs> you know, bread's my thing, and I'll, I'll try to take that credit. But people people usually know how I am, and they're like, "Okay," <laughs> they they recognize like they're like, "Maybe you were in the room when it was happening." but we know that Chelsea made the bread. Same thing with salvation, friends. You might be in the room when it's happening, but it's all the work of God. Your belief comes in response to what God is doing in you. God's grace comes to us through faith. We are saved all by the work of God. Salvation is not a transaction where we do our part and God does his part. God is responsible for the whole work of justification. And notice notice why Paul wants us to know that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. I mean emphasize it's not your own doing wants to be clear, it's not you, it's God. This is the gift of God, not the result of works. You see, so that here's the purpose coming, here's the reason, so that no one may boast. None of us has anything to boast in. As Christians, what we have, we received from God. We can't take pride in. It's in light of this that we ought to boast. Not in ourselves, but in God. Boast in what God has done. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10:17, let the one who boasts boast. In the Lord. He's quoting Jeremiah 9, where the prophet says, or God says to the prophet, let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. And so our boast is not in what we have done, but in what God has done. Friend, I wonder when was the last time you took some time to think about God's mercy and grace to you? I challenge you to take some time today or maybe this week, to get by yourself, to open your Bible, maybe a journal along with it, and to meditate on God's grace to you. And do you, what was the last time you just thought about your conversion and your baptism? Thought about how faithful God was to give you life. And then thought about how faithful he's been every moment since then. His past faithfulness is proof of his future faithfulness to you. He will be faithful. Boast in God's faithfulness. Boast in God's great work of saving you. And boast to one another about it. This afternoon when you go to lunch with someone or have dinner together, exchange conversion stories. Talk to one another about what God has done in your life. How he saved you. Make much of the saving work of Christ. Boast in God. Non-Christian. Learn the lesson that Charles Spurgeon learned so long ago. Learn the lesson that all the Christians in this room have learned. And the millions and millions of people with us. You can be saved by looking, not within, but by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the Lamb of God who was slain. Look to the cross where His heart blood is poured out for sins. Look to the empty tomb from which He rose. Look to Him ascended at the Father's right hand, full of power. Look to the future, to His return, to make everything sad, untrue, and to make all things new. Look and live. Receive the grace of God. Believe. God saves sinners. Receive His grace this morning. God delights to save all who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Him. Paul wants to make clear that salvation is God's work, not ours. And then in verse 10, he wants to give to us a second reason why no one can boast and give to us an injunction. Look with me at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we are in Christ, if we've been united to Him by faith, Paul says we are a new creation. The idea here is the same as that which comes to us in Genesis 1. God creates all that exists. And what He does in us is He he creates us anew. The word for workmanship here actually has this idea of like beautiful artwork wrapped up in it. It says, if you're in in Christ, you are God's beautiful work. His new creation. Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, saying, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So he says we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's, he's removing the second reason of boasting by saying this. Even the good works that you're going to do as a result of your salvation, as the result of being a new creation in Christ, even those good works that you're going to do, God ordained that. God prepared those works that you would walk in them. God planned for the good works that you're going to do. So you can't even take credit for the good things you're going to do as a result of your salvation because that's from God too. No one may boast. We are in Christ. We are new creations. his workmanship. And as a result, we will have a new walk, a new way of life. This verb, walk, is a Hebrew idiom for live. And it shows up in a variety of places throughout Ephesians. Some of your translations probably have brought it across as live, especially later on. But, but we see it in verse 2, verse two of chapter 2. Right? It's talking about your dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now look, the situation is reversed at the end of our little pericope here, right? It's called an inclusio, same theme, letting us know this is a a unit that works together. So, verse 10 at the end, the works that we should walk in them, right? So when you were dead, you walked this way. Now that you're alive, you will walk this way. You'll live this way. And Paul's going to spell that out throughout the rest of Ephesians, right? In 4.1, he's going to say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In 5.2, he says, walk in love. In 5.8, he says, walk as children of the light. 5.15, walk not as unwise, but as wise he's going to spell out for us what it looks like to follow jesus once he gets done with all of these indicatives in the first part of ephesians telling us about our identity in christ he's going to move on to the imperatives to tell us about the kind of actions that we're going to take because we're in christ and so if you want to you want to remember this if you are in christ you will live differently Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, to paraphrase Aerosmith, they're going to walk this way. New creation, the new walk, new works that God has created for us. You go, what are these works? Well, generally, they're things that all Christians are called to, some of which are enumerated for us in the New Testament, gathering together to worship God Encouraging one another towards good deeds and love, praying, singing to God, evangelism. But also, also, these works include things that are specific to you. You go, Oh, what is it that I need to do? Exactly what you are doing. Whatever work that you find yourself doing in your life is work that God has prepared you to do well or to use poorer English, to do good. So, whatever your job is, you're building a house or cutting grass or operating on someone, you are to do it to the glory of God. The Colossians 1.17 And whatever you do, that's whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, that means everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So so all that you do are things that you should do well to the glory of God. Satan tries to tell us two great lies. That we are are typically pretty quick to believe. And Paul is dispelling both of them in these verses. One is, is that if you're really a good person, if you've got some great moral capital, you can save yourself. That's lie number one. You're saved by your works. And and he spent all of verse 8 and the preceding verses to make sure we understand we aren't saved by our works. It's not of you. The, The second great lie, though, and this one's just as successful, says, no works are required for the Christian. So so the idea is that he's going to completely divorce Christ-like living from union with Christ. What happens when that that happens is is we end up with a, a cultural kind of Christianity that's uncommitted and consumeristic. Christians believe that they can then Treat church and one another as consumers. I say things like, the church exists for me. I don't need to join one. Jesus loves me just as I am, therefore I can stay just as I am. No need to change. I can call myself a Christian even though I have not really followed Jesus at all. I'm still doing things my way. That is a lie. Paul says, if you're a new creation in Christ, you're going to have a new walk. I mean, Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If we are united with Christ, We're going to live like it. The idea that we can be alive in Christ and still walk as dead people, verses 1 through 3, is a lie. If we are in Christ, then we will live as new people, verses 4 through 10. We're not going to be perfect. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. But the trajectory of our lives will be different. We will be controlled by the Spirit rather than the flesh. This is what James is getting at in his epistle when he says, faith without works is dead. He's not saying you're saved by your works. He's saying that if your faith is in Christ and you've been made alive, well, then you're going to live like it. There's going to be evidence of that salvation in your life. Some time ago, I don't remember when, uh, Chelsea and I had, had this issue with, with our boys. It'd be dinner time regularly for about a week or so, and and they wouldn't be hungry. Chelsea's a pretty good cook. I don't, don't think was, that was the issue. You know, they'd sit down, like, you're gonna eat anything. No, no, I'm I'm good. And we just we couldn't puzzle together what was going on. Maybe they're fasting, <laughs> praying really much, a lot together. And then one day, Not not as the result of an investigation, but just by happenstance, we found in the basement piles and piles of candy wrappers. There's evidence that they were trafficking in illegal contraband. There was evidence of their activity. If you have been made alive to God, there will be evidence of His activity. Is God's work evident in you? Do you believe? Are you battling against sin? Are you longing for God? Friends, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What do you need to do to the glory of God? What commandment of God have you not been obeying that you need to obey? Did you ever think, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's us, Christian. That's the church. Have you ever thought to say to somebody, you want to see God at work in the world? Look at the church. We're His workmanship, a display of His glory. We should be able to say, if you want to see God at work, look at the church. Look at Christians." Isn't it amazing to think that one of the ways God has designed to reveal Himself in creation is through us, through us doing those things that He prepared for us to do? It's amazing. Christianity is not dull, right? You didn't, when you got saved, you didn't get saved into retirement. Right? Your, your, your baptism was not the end of the Christian life. It was those first steps. Christian life is not dull. It's war. It's not boring, It's an adventure. As we walk along the path of life, we encounter all those challenges and good works that God has prepared for us. Let us boast in what God has done and delight to bear the fruit that He has cultivated for us. Paul wants to Be sure that we recognize salvation is God's work, not ours. And if we are saved, our salvation will result in spirit empowered good works. Therefore, we boast in God and commit ourselves to bearing good fruit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our salvation is not contingent upon us, that we can't lose it because we didn't earn it. We thank you that you give it to us freely as a gift that's received by faith. We thank you that we can affirm with the Reformers that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to your glory alone. We thank you even though, not even though, we thank you that we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. We thank you that we've been made new creatures, given a new way to walk. Pray that you would help us to do this under your glory. Help us to never tire of celebrating your great work of salvation in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.